Hi, and welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by Dan Rogenkamp. He is the co-founder and director of setupmyoffshore.com.au. And as it says on the box, he helps businesses, primarily in Australia, set up their offshore operations, again, primarily in the Philippines. Dan is great to talk to. He has really interesting insights. He starts from a perspective of business advisory, accounting, and has another firm in that vein. So it's interesting his knowledge and skills that he's transferred across into the outsourcing industry. So it's a great conversation, uh, and I learned a lot. And we also share our thoughts on the evolution of the industry over the last one or two decades, and also the prospects of the industry over the future one or two decades, especially considering AI and things like that. So a really good conversation with Dan. As always, if you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. Enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by Outsource Accelerator. We are the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory we help big and small businesses with their outsourcing needs, and we can help you too. We cover everything from offshore business and staffing strategy, optimal outsourcing structures, implementations, and fully managed services. If you are already outsourcing, about to start, or are somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your offshore operations. The Outsource Accelerator Marketplace now covers over 3,000 outsourcing firms, representing a global workforce of over 5 million people. We also host this leading outsourcing podcast, publish inside outsourcing, and have over 15,000 pages of content on the site. Because we span the entire market, we can ensure that you get the best deal possible. Get in touch today. Visit us at outsourceaccelerator.com quote. Also, if you find this podcast interesting or valuable, please share it. We have now produced hundreds of episodes featuring the outsourcing world's most prominent luminaries. Please show your support by sharing this podcast today. So you have a business called setupmyoffshore.com.au. Dan, you are clearly Australian and it's an Australian domain. So I assume that you're helping businesses in Australia set up offshore. What does that mean for you? And can you give us an overview of your business? Yeah, certainly. So we started out and for us, we were a very clear vision and drive to provide high performing staff members to businesses across Australia. And there's a little bit of a back backlog story to that. But I guess my background specifically has been in systems and technology and people. And, and I use those three things quite together. So consulting to the larger end of town, right through to the national, state and local government, through to SMBs. And I guess throughout that journey, one thing I always pride myself and something that I always saw as a disconnect was people, systems and process. And we naturally got into this space after running a successful accounting practice for a few years and saw that there was a really a need for 
you know, to offer value from a staffing perspective and staffing to a lot of our direct clients, but a lot of our wider network as well in business. So, I guess for us, what it means is being able to provide really quality staffing and high-performing staffing that values both the staff member themselves, which we feel, you know, sometimes traditional outsourcing providers don't necessarily provide that, but, you know, that that dual relationship between adding value both to the staff member and to the clients themselves. So, that's really been a core driver and value proposition for us. And with your core business and you were doing accounting, I assume you were using offshore staff in that accounting service. Is there any reason why you sort of decided to go broader and more offer more generalist staff offshore as opposed to just sort of doubling down on the accounting? I ask that because I'm always interested with uh, vertical outsourcing firms such as accountancy and they just focus on accountancy and they find that a a great option. But I always sort of see that there's a lot of opportunity to Mm. expand out. And if you don't, then you're sort of restricting your opportunities as a business. So, What were your thoughts in terms of expanding away from just the accounting discipline? Yeah, it's a really interesting run. It's an interesting question you asked, Eric, because I guess the thing for us is we started considering offshore staff with the accounting practice directly for our own operations. And from there, we quickly saw when we did the journey of exploring offshore providers and everything else, we went to the Philippines, visited a few of these houses and I guess for us, we saw quite quickly that there was, you know, there wasn't a model there that we really supported from our own cultural perspective. So, what I mean by that is we have a high-performing accounting practice here, which still exists. And we saw the opportunity to essentially do that ourselves, you know, being accountants, we're able to set up our own business entity, which, by the way, is really not an easy process to go under. It was, a, you know, a good year of going back and forth from the Philippines to do that correctly. But I guess from there, when it was quite an organic process for us of hiring staff to support our operations and then, you know, for us, our wider business networks started asking questions around staffing themselves. So, we started providing some staff accountants and administrators. And specifically from there, as we grew and as more our network grew, and we haven't marketed what our offshoring business does for many years. We actually only started outwardly marketing our services in the last year and a half. We saw that there was an opportunity when we partner with the right businesses that really have want to have a high-performing staff member as if that staff member is just another team member, albeit you know, permanently working from home. We saw that there was an opportunity to not just add value in the accounting space, particularly when we look at really skilled and talented individuals which we've got access to in the Philippines. Thankfully, we, we were able to start sourcing and supporting in other industry verticals that really support small business in Australia. And that can range from uh, marketing, we've got marketing specialists, IT developers, right through to legal and legal support. We've got a, quite a few high-functioning practices that use us for their paralegal support and content writing support as well. Right through to even one of our clients is one of the leading hydrogeology and geography geology houses here in, in Australia, consulting to some of the major mining companies. And we actually undertook a, a search for them to find a principal hydrogeologist to manage their entire project operations remotely. Actually, interesting story there. That staff member that we sourced for this consultancy it was has actually 
in their former life worked on the same mine sites as the existing board members of that consultancy practice based here. So it's really interesting being able to bring that connection in for them so that they've got a high-performing staff member who's able to really you know, know the industry, uh, knows what the business is around, but provide quite high-value project management support with technical backing as well. So I guess we naturally went into those other verticals because we saw that there was value there for the right client and for the right staff member. And it's a good example that because it's important, I think, to remind and remind and remind people that outsourcing or offshoring is not just Filipino VAs. You know, you get the whole gambit of professional roles, disciplines, and, you know, people actually get better value for money if you are hiring from the top of the ladder as opposed to your basic kind of all-round assistant. And I cannot stress that enough and often enough, yet people fall into what is like the default of just hiring basic administrative assistants, often not paying them enough. So sort of picking from the lower part of the pool, getting disappointed with outsourcing, and then, you know, sort of dismissing the whole thing. So you have mentioned quite a few times now, high performing employee, high performing company. Why do you make that distinction? Obviously, everyone wants to work with the high performing people, but who who doesn't kind of thing and who doesn't see themselves as a high performing company, would you say? I think if I look at an example of a lot of small businesses that we speak to in medium-sized enterprise and larger-sized enterprise, I think a lot of those businesses would like to think themselves as high-performing and therefore in their staffing and hiring decisions, they go about making a decision on hiring based on their current infrastructure, which may not support a high-performing culture internally and not even just for their domestic staff, but internationally as well. When we look at a staff member working remotely, there's an extra emphasis on making sure that high performance is, is a holistic picture. And what I mean by holistic is combining the systems, the people and the process in one journey. So a, a lot of our time that we spend with new clients and with inquiries that we receive is actually talking to people about their business and talking to people about their systems, their people, their process, A, because it builds a really good understanding of where they're up to from a business lifecycle perspective and B, where we can genuinely and transparently describe what type of skill set will add value and potentially what skill set won't. That's really, really, really important. So I think high performance as a term is often thrown around and is often defined by whoever the user of that word is. But what I encourage businesses to do is to really question when they're looking at any staffing decision, you know, that people, systems and processes, a triad relationship and really consider that and working towards high performance. And that's when any hiring decision, whether it's domestic or abroad, we see the, the biggest value for, for, for clients. And in terms of a cross-section, so if I got you to hire 100 staff for my business, you know, of course, I want all A players. I want the best of the best, the top 1%. Is that really possible, though? You know, I know a couple of business people, and they have the philosophy that it's absolutely impossible. And even within Google, if you take a cross-section of 100 people, you're going to get 10% that are A players. You're going to get 10% that are absolutely 
playing the system. They're not even turning up to work. And then you probably get sort of 50% in the middle that are just absolutely average. And because certainly with the case of Google, when you're hiring 185,000 people, you just simply cannot kind of attract all A players. And then within that, you're going to get people slacking off. So is it really possible to, and as well with outsourcing, and I'm certainly guilty of this as well, I sell the dream. I say, you know, you can get fantastic, incredible, highly qualified professionals at a 70% discount. But I know the reality of employment is it's hard. You know, whether you're employing people in the Philippines or in Australia or in Silicon Valley, it's really hard to get the best out of people. It's hard to build a culture Mm. around them. It's hard to maintain that. It's hard to communicate. It's hard to keep them all on track. And so the shine of the promise wears off a little bit because people are like, well, this is hard. You sold me a dream. So how do you kind of... (laughs) you know, balance out those those realities. Well, it's a really good point. And I think those players do sit in a different space to us. And the players that do the, you know, volume recruitment and outsourcing, part of our driver and part of the reason why we haven't and, and won't do that is, is you're right, statistically even, it's incredibly hard to manage manage quality at volume, I think is probably the first point I'll make. But the second part as well is I think when you look at those particular organizations that are looking to hire for that purpose, they are, they're not looking to hire 100 A players. They are comfortable with probably a spread of skill set and a spread of risk across that group of 100 as well. And that's what's the really the critical point there is a lot of those organizations, again, have really robust systems, people, and process procedures that help mitigate the risk and perform controls when they do hire on volume and hire on volume with potentially a very small percentage, as you said, of A players, a percentage of B players, and a percentage of C or D players. So that's where we saw and agree completely a, a, a significant challenge in the market. And that's why for us, the volume and how we go about recruitment is a lot different to those organizations that hire at scale. I'd be happy to share some examples of that, but I guess we're quite passionate about our front-end process, and I think that's probably the thing we worked on very, very, very hard at the start of our journey is getting that recruitment process right. Mm. At the end and of the day, really critical, people are people, because right? It, it is it, like the majority of the success of an outsourcing relationship is actually the staff member that you place into that role. And if you place the perfect staff member, then absolutely like everything could almost be falling down around it and not performing or or just invisible. And then the client's happy. Whereas you could have the best company in the world, the best systems, the best product, the best pricing. But if the staff member is just not performing, then they're not going to be happy. So it's really, really critical, isn't it, in terms of how you get the right people into those roles. It is. It is. I think do you feel you have a magic bullet for that? Like I, you know, again, not wanting to be the skeptic, but I see recruitment as pretty random. You know, people have all these sort of kind of tests and, but I reckon it's a bit of luck kind of thing. How, how do I, you manage I, that? People, people are luck, aren't they? Like when you look across organizations and, you know, that whole hiring piece and people management, I know there's extensive amount of research put into you know what makes a high performing culture what makes a happy culture and a positive and constructive culture 
It, it is. It, it is really hard. You're dealing with people at the end of the day. But I think when you, you know, combine a rough, pro, uh, robust process with the right culture in your internal team, and I guess that's where a big focus for us is building that culture within our recruitment team and our recruitment operations team work very closely together so that the client relationship is really strong and we try and always continually work on that we're we're not perfect and we never prescribe to being perfect don't get me wrong but one of the one of the most important things we do is aligning that culture piece and that driver piece between what the drivers are of the the client and the role and the drivers of the individual themselves and when you focus on those elements we seem to get more success than not obviously people will be people it is hard, particularly at the moment. I mean, we're in a we're in a labour shortage globally. It's not easy finding good skilled talent, yeah, by any stretch of the imagination. But a lot of hard work does help sometimes, Derek. And are there specific processes or tests or skills that you think really moves the needle in terms of identifying the right people? Is it the qualitative interviews? Is it sort of I don't know objective tests and measures, personality tests? Um, how do you, what are the things that really clinch it? Genuinely, it's a blend of all those things and above. One of the things that we've actually found quite interesting is from our recruitment process perspective, we've got the least barriers of entry as to any of the other organizations that do or provide outsourcing offshoring services. I, I think we're, we are probably one of the better ones. And what I mean by that is a lot of staff members physically in the Philippines do have to go through very very restrictive practices to just even apply and qualify for a first round interview, which what we've found is actually quite a deterrent for a lot of good talent for those other organizations. So naturally, we focused on enabling good talent to find us and to enjoy the recruitment process. We, we focused on that just as much as we focused on you know, doing the basics, right? Having a bit of a background in psychology did, did help us uh, a little bit, Derek. So my background actually originally was in psych. And, you know, having access to some of, you know, the more valid and reliable psychometric assessments, technical assessments, depending on the industry vertical and the technical vertical, allowed us to get get the skill set right, but then really focus on the interview techniques, you know, the relationship building techniques of that staff, potential staff member when they come to us to ensure a greater rate of success than I think some of you know, the other organizations in our space experience. So there's no magic bullet, Derek. <laughs> I wish there was, but there's no magic bullet. I think it's a combination of a few things, if I'm honest. Yeah, it'd be nice, wouldn't it? And, you know, I think, unfortunately, I, I see a lot of these processes as, as a little bit of voodoo, you know, like people or reading the tea leaves and people believe them so much. But ultimately, I think you've got to date people before you marry them. And, you know, it's a learning process. They need to get to know you. You need to get to know them. And that's really difficult. If someone's leaving a job to take a new job, then, of course, that can't be taken lightly. But it's very difficult from a series of interviews. And also what I found as well is, is, you know, if you're Google with a million applicants per month, then you can have these incredible filters and tests and make them jump through hoops. And whereas when you're in a labor shortage and you're a normal business and you maybe get you know, five or 10 applicants, you can probably throw out five immediately because they're completely unqualified or unsuitable. And then, 
you know, there's really big sort of binary differences between the remaining five candidates. And so you're not sort of in the minutiae kind of saying, you know, is this one going to choose A, B or C to this particular question? It's a lot more sort of macro. So I've never Absolutely. ever found a situation, and, and this is over 20 years of hiring hundreds and hundreds of people, that it's often like the beauty parade that sort of employment books suggest, you know. Um, <laughs> it's, I love the analogy of we must date first before we get married. It's very, very true. In fact, it, it, you know, if I'm reflecting on it now, and I, I'm not sure what you found in your experience, Derek, because obviously you've got several more years experience in the space than myself. But I, I found when we actually had a starting, the starting correspondence with a potential applicant was a literally a 15, 20 minute meeting. We do this process to this day. Is any applicant that looks like they're ticking some of the requirements of a role um, in a shortlist, we will organize what we call a vibe check. We'll literally just do a 15, 20 minute vibe check with one of the team. I still jump into quite a few of those myself. And that in itself is, I think, a really great starting point for the journey. And it allows you to kind of start building that relationship or seeing if there's a relationship there to be built. Mm. Mm. No, that's good. And you mentioned uh, culture quite a few times. So what are your thoughts on building a high-performing culture? Like what is the essence of that, especially in today's world where it's fast-changing and kind of employees are calling the shots a lot more. Everyone wants to be remote. You know, it's far more digital. So what do you sort of see as the crux of culture? Crux of culture, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one. I, I talk to businesses a lot and I guess part of what I also do, you know, as part of what we do at Sumo is, you know, provide a lot of, you know, CFO business advisory services to, you know, clients across Australia as well. So, we often see the other side of the coin in terms of those businesses going through a growth journey, not just from a staffing perspective, but holistically from, you know, a business growth perspective as well. And, what I often find is, you know, and you're exactly right, Derek, we're in a, I think in many respects, depending on generation, we're in a very much a staff-led ecosystem right now in terms of how small to medium-sized business operate and certainly larger corporations as well. What I often see is being very helpful to businesses, particularly small, I'll, I'll touch on small to medium-sized businesses first, is actually really defining what your values and missions are. And as, as I think as cliche as it can sound, Derek, it's actually incredibly important to have that as a living and breathing model for everything that's done each and every day across an organization, whether you're a plumber, whether you're an engineering consultant, whether you dig holes for a living, whether you drive trucks, you know, own a you know, small trucking business, whatever the case is, no matter what you do, having that values clear to yourself, clear to the management team and the rest of the staff and speaking to that in your actions each and every day, I think is probably one of the most empowering things that any business owner or leadership group can do. And that's what I think sets the tone for culture is having that clearly defined and written, but also embodying that in day-to-day practice. Uh, that's where I see it really starting, Derek, if I'm honest, just with those key things. Yeah, no, it's interesting, isn't it? And you, are you remote or office-based? Like, What are your thoughts on that one? Because that has a huge impact on the functional culture as well, doesn't it? Yeah, so we were, it's an interesting one for us. So we, 
Before COVID, so we, we were operating for a few years before COVID with our team and we typically don't use the word offshore internally either. It, we're very much just a global team and a, you know, a global team that's servicing clients in Australia. But the what we uh, what we did when we first started is similar to our offices here in Australia, we maintain the same set of rules and the same set of expectations uh, in terms of working from home, working in office, etc. So we do have physical office facilities uh, in Manila uh, in an area called Eastwood, which if anyone gets a chance to go to, it's a beautiful little hub. Um, depending on which city you're in in Australia, there's a fairly comparable little cities and hubs in every major city in Australia to Eastwood. Eastwood's a beautiful little space. But what we had is we saw that, you know, as you would have found, Derek, living in the Philippines for a while, traffic's not your friend at all. So we built a model in our ecosystem that was really agile around you know, tech and security, the actual infrastructure of what we use from a technology perspective right through your own device management, being non-restrictive but being agile. So all the staff use you know, enterprise grade laptops, etc. We came up with a, a culture and philosophy fairly quickly that of having a hybrid model. So some of our staff will work a few days from home, a few days in the office. Other staff will work permanently from home and we'll do regular monthly or quarterly visits where we'll get together at a certain location in either bubbles or in groups. And that really helps build the, the connectedness across the entire team. So we, we have a similar model to what we have here in Australia and we encourage our clients as well to support you know, really get behind that model. And to be honest, it's something that we've found incredibly successful for work-life balance. Uh, that tr- you know, I'm not sure if the listeners may or may not know this, but the average commute time I think is up over an hour and a half for the average for the average person to travel to and from work in Manila. It's, yeah, easily. Hard yeah, imagine, it's yeah. three, four, four hours a day worth of travel. So we wanted to, you know, work-life balance and making sure people are high-performing, part of high-performing cultures to make sure people aren't stuck in traffic for upwards of four or five hours a day. So we've had a hybrid model that we still keep to this day. And how how does that, how do you feel that interacts with culture? You know, do you find that as the world becomes more remote, more online, more digital, it erodes this sense of culture, the water cooler moments? And, you know, there's an argument that the people that grow up in a remote-only environment they're going to have far lower loyalty to the businesses they're in and they can kind of job hop because they're more of an island, you know. They, they've never gone into the office. They've never met their colleagues personally. And so there's a risk then that actually it's a lot of a it's a lot more looser connection to their mission and purpose. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great point. People need people. As much as we, you know, human beings do love and personality types do love isolation in different regards. People do genuinely need people. We are social creatures. We're community focused since the dawn of time. People have established communities, have fostered communities and want to be a part of a community. So having that sense of community is so important to what they do. And that does involve person interaction and that does involve office time. I we when we went through the journey of COVID and where, you know, when people were essentially full-time work from home we still really drove home the fact that for everyone's well-being and happiness people need to get out and see people people need to come into the office and we balance that between office time but obviously doing things outside the office as well 
So building that sense of community and trying to strike that right balance is incredibly important. I don't believe in any 100% permanent work from home, never see your colleagues is is ever going to be successful, truly successful, particularly in our space and our focus. Yeah. And what do you see? There's, you know, huge talk about the rise of AI and UCM fairly technology forward company. There's arguments that AI could really devastate accounting as one thing because it's fairly sort of formulaic. Where are you seeing that being weaved into your business processes and is it a threat or is it an opportunity? It's 100% an opportunity. I think any business owner just holistically should really consider the opportunity that AI and this type of technology provides. There, There is a piece that this is a moving ball and a moving ball that we can't stop or slow down particularly in the concept in the context of staffing and staffing for accounting for accounting practices it's immensely important to realize that ai is not going to come in tomorrow and automate everything some of the biggest leaders in tech in accounting so if we're looking at you know the major system providers qbo myob zero here in australia obviously reckon us Zero is obviously emerging and a few of those other players. But if we look specifically in the Australian context, AI is not going to take over. There are tools that have been developed. In fact, we've got a we've developed a tool as well to help small businesses with yeah, doing yeah, online transacting, invoicing expenses, you know, a small business platform where small businesses can get small business tools. We utilize AI in that application as well. And when we look at the wider ecosystem and the tech that exists, there's nothing that's going to replace the role of an accountant anytime in the near future. Yes, there's going to be areas of improvement, areas of automation, but I think that's a really positive driver forward and an opportunity for accountants specifically to get out of the weeds. It's an opportunity for accountants to drive forward and offer what I see as true advisory, not just accounting advisory, but true CFO and business advisory. And that's not a bad thing. Whether you're looking at any of the made players that do a degree of automation for compliance for businesses at the moment, I won't name all their names because I don't want to throw their hat in the ring <laughs> but necessarily if they don't want their hat to be thrown in the ring. But there's there are a lot of players and certainly a lot of the technology for small business at the mo- moment that do a level of automation for compliance. That shouldn't be seen as a threat. The organizations and those businesses still need an accountant I still need the support of accountant. The role of the accountant, as it has over the last 20 years, will continue to adapt and evolve. And this is just an opportunity, like for any other professional services business or non-professional services business, to grow with that as well. I think there's a lot of value if harnessed in the right way. Yeah, it's got to continue up the value ladder, hasn't it? And, mm. and like most professions, I think the entry-level stuff is going to be automated away, but there's still value to be added and increasing value to be added at the top of the ladder. Tons, absolutely. And so you're based in Australia and, you know, obviously targeting the Australian market. What do you see on the ground? You know, I'm still amazed after I've spent kind of 10 years in this industry now in some form or another that people are still not completely embracing it. And there's certain uh, parts of society, certain industries that really embrace offshore staff, but still the vast majority of businesses have not yet hired globally, as I refer to it. What are you seeing on the ground? Is there sort of resistance? Are people now aware of outsourcing at least? 
what's holding them back? What do, what are your thoughts with all of that? Yeah, it's really interesting, Derek. I'm not sure, of, like when you started 20 years ago, how you felt the industry would go over the long term. It'd be really interesting to actually get your thoughts on where the journey started and where it is now, and you know that that journey in between. But when we started six years ago, I felt that we you know, in the next 10 years, the concept of this increasing globalization piece, it would be, it'd be probably looked at in a way that it's, you know, there's a lot more of an open market. And I think we are moving towards that trend, which is generally an open skill set economy. But there is still a lot of, uh, it, I still see the industry very much in its infancy in many ways is probably how I'd summarize it. It's interesting when you speak to businesses and there are certain I- industries that historically would have never have gone near offshoring or considered a staff member that wasn't based physically in the office. Obviously, COVID may have had a bit of a push in that that philosophy change but or adaptation, I should say. But I guess where we are now is when we're speaking with businesses, there's a lot more open-mindedness in industry verticals that may have historically not been so keen two to four years ago. But generally speaking, there's yeah, there, there's a lot more open-mindedness. I think the connotation and fear surrounding the industry still exists very much in terms of these images of hundreds of staff sitting in these white rooms, no one's speaking to each other, everyone's putting their mobile phones and personal devices in a locker as they walk in. I think a lot of those connotations in terms of staff treatment, in terms of staff performance still exist. But the open-mindedness to having a conversation, I see even over the years we've been in operation, the openness to have a conversation around offshoring is growing and growing as time goes on. What are you seeing, Derek? And particularly over the last 20 years or so, be interesting to hear your thoughts. I mean, I certainly have been in it 20 years, but I've been in business 20 years, you know, Industry's very quickly evolving. I, I listened to a podcast once of the guy that um, invented Elance, which became Upwork after an acquisition. And, you know, when that started 20, 25 years ago, they, on the website, they had to explain the concept and people were incredulous that you could actually get stuff uh, done what was essentially online, you know, like people couldn't even get that concept. And then the fact that they were sitting in a different location, local, uh, country, uh, you know, it was just beyond people. And so mm. he was explaining that their journey was very much education and sort of trying to convince people that this was a possibility. Now I think the whole world has moved on and they realize that there is all of this out there and with Upwork, with online jobs, with just this, well, with Tim Ferriss as well and the concept of, of Filipino VAs, people are aware of it. But I tend to think that there's still not this widespread adoption. I think that once you reach it, there'll be a tipping point. Once kind of 30% of businesses offshore or outsource, then it will hit a tipping point at which point everyone will, because business owners are generally friendly with each other. They're generally within networks and know each other and talk. So it certainly hasn't reached anywhere near the tipping point yet, which surprises me. I also think as well as the millennials, as the young people grow up and they become the entrepreneurs and business owners, you know, they have all grown up in a digital reality and they're on forums and they prefer to chat as in texting rather than meeting. And they're just across platforms socially. So I think that it will become the default way of employment 
as these sort of younger generations become the employers. So yeah, I think it's slow, but I think there's an inevitability that it will become a default within 10 years. I mean, we project that there's about another 20 million jobs to come offshore over the next kind of 10 to 15 years, oh, which wow. is about a $600 billion opportunity. So it's going to grow. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to watch. It's And I think widely people didn't people don't appreciate what really positive opportunities there are to offshore within their business and obviously the positive impacts that that can have on their business and it's not around replacing you know labor with offshore cheaper labor with more domestic labor it's we see it very much as adding value and adding opportunities for businesses and entrepreneurs to grow and therefore stimulate economy grow hire more domestic staff etc which has uh, been our personal experience over the last yeah what amazes me is people still don't quite get the concept of you know they think it's something different than something more complex than what it is and it's really just employment except they're just standard employees except they're sitting somewhere else and then because they're sitting somewhere else you need an intermediary to be able to facilitate that and make it easy and seamless but it's really just employment and people sort of see it it as this kind of mystical beast and sort of far more complex than really uh, just standard employment. So I think that people will hopefully normalize it a lot more. But then I, I find it interesting, I think as it becomes more normalized, then there's going to be disintermediation and the intermediaries, which are the BPOs um, to some degree like ourselves, um, it's likely that we will be disintermediated and the employment will occur without the middleman. I think that's the likely future, um, which we will all be facing in a couple of decades kind of thing. Mm, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see the impact of globalization and what opportunities sit within that as well. And I think that's where us as providers can look in other areas to add value. Uh, and particularly with the likes of some of these platforms as they grow, I think it really encourages us to focus on our value proposition, right? And where we can add more value as that piece of as that piece of middleware, to use that expression, really facilitating, enabling performance, enabling growth, enabling those other things that I think small to medium size and larger enterprise really drive home. I think it's good to keep us on our toes as you know the industry grows to really weed out any of the providers that maybe aren't doing and holding the industry to the, the level that we all would love. Mm, mm. It's interesting that, isn't it? Because You know, I find the association with outsourcing is that all of the clients need help with their, what is effectively employment. Whereas the typical Australian business in Australia, when hiring people in Australia, they don't actually have any help when hiring their employees in Australia, you know, and very rarely would a business take that step to have a consultant or a structural or process consultant or HR consultant even. And the vast majority of businesses employ direct and then they fumble through it and then they sort of build their own processes kind of thing. Yet with outsourcing, it's often associated that there is this, you know, we will take care of you. We will show you how to build these processes kind of thing. So there is a bit of a, yeah, I I find it interesting how the two industries have evolved. If you look at it as two industries, one of local employment versus global employment. But I, I think these things will sort of equalize a little bit over the coming years. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see what that journey looks like. It's, and I know when businesses are hiring domestically, 
I think sometimes having that opportunity to have that third party provide that reflection, provide some of that feedback and give some of that structure around a role. It's it's interesting when I sometimes when I speak with new businesses that are considering offshoring, the conversations are directly not around offshoring itself. It's actually around putting together the role itself and looking for other opportunities within the organization for that to add value. And that process in itself wouldn't be a process that that business, you're right, would go through if they're hiring domestically. But they would have just put up an ad on Seek for a bookkeeper, not a bookkeeping or operations support administrator, which ideally has backgrounds in X, Y, Z, for instance. And that's where I think the industry and where we can add value specifically and where some of the volume houses will be challenged because it's when you look at volume for larger corporate enterprise, they've got that skill set and they've got that value add internally. They don't need a third party to do that. But if you look at the SMB marketplace, that's where I think there's a good opportunity for us to add value um, to make sure it's not just another staff member who's at a lower cost base. It's a staff member that's highly skilled for the role, is holistically fitting to the organization's objectives and values and you know is empowering the organization, not just another staff member. So it's, yeah, it will be interesting to see. And I think there's probably a place for those organizations, you know, to consider things like Upwork, et cetera, if they've just got straightforward tasks and other items that need to be done. I think there's a role where we can all play in the space really, really nicely together. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of your pricing structure, obviously, you know, it varies tremendously and we don't need to know dollars and cents, but do you provide, is it a all-in price where your services are sort of, you know, connected with the staffing hours or is it a transparent pricing how do you structure the pricing because obviously you kind of get two for one don't you you get your full-time dedicated staff member but then of course there is this um, oversight and expertise from your business so how do you structure that pricing yeah so we've got two very specific models but they're very similar from a price point and an end price point perspective it it really caters to the different types of clients that we have and one we call the b2b client versus the B2C client. So, the B2C is a typical client who is new to offshoring and would like none of the complexity in terms of a statement at the end of the month, which highlights some of the specifics that we go to in the B2C contract. We're very open and transparent around wages and what we pay staff to all clients irrespective of whether they're B2B or B2C. That's been part of our philosophy from the start as well. So being transparent around what we pay staff and also focusing on paying staff at a high, you know, commiserate for their role, but, you know, well for the commiserate role that they perform, if that makes sense. So we've got two different models though that cater to two different sort of buying groups that we have and customer groups that we have. The first is the, as I said, the the B2C, which is a typically a customer that doesn't have a large offshoring team or isn't too well versed in offshoring and just wants a set fixed fee each and every month that includes everything that we do. So the social initiatives, obviously wages, insurance, healthcare, etc. And that's a one fixed fee that's non-variable each and every month. And that includes all, you know, gifts, social activities that we do as well. So we're very active socially. So hence why our price point, we're, we're definitely not the cheapest offshore provider. And we don't try to be either because our model is a lot higher touch than some of the other providers. So we can't afford to do it at their cost rate. But we, for those customers, of course, that's just all fixed. The other customer base, we 
We do a rolling month-by-month invoice, which will be slightly variable depending on what activities are happening in the month, for instance. And we have some clients, for instance, that, you know, other accounting practices as well. So that's probably a maybe a bit of a shock to some listeners. Yes, we still have an operating accounting practice, but a lot of our friends and network and staff are actually working in other accounting practices as we speak. So for us, we that, that industry is used to a very specific model, which is a variable pricing model where, you know, staff wages, salary and the monthly activities and any extras are broken down month by month. When we look at year to date, though, the pricing is essentially exactly the same for both models. The B2B model gives those staff, you know, some of those clients that have slightly larger teams the opportunity to say, well, look, we might not be involved in this particular social initiative this month. We'll put that money towards another social initiative and that type of thing. Whereas B2C clients, typically, they just want that everything's looked after for them and you know we'll mention hey we went to we went on a trip we're going on a trip in december they don't need you know they're not concerned about pricing or anything because that's all included so very much same end result pricing outcome just catering to the two different buying groups as you said i think from an industry perspective the accounting industry is very much used to a particular way of transacting in offshoring and outsourcing so we catered to that but then we catered to the way that a lot of small to medium sized enterprise want which is they don't want to have to think about specifics they just want a fixed monthly fee each and every month got it well dan congratulations on the journey and the growth as always i encourage people to to reach out have a conversation and see how outsourcing can transform their business so if anyone wants to get in touch how can they do that through the website, so www.setupmyoffshore.com.au. Uh, you can email me directly as well at dan at setupmyoffshore.com.au. Either of those two mechanisms are fine. Happy to have a chat. Would love to have a chat with anyone, even if a little bit on the fence about offshoring, but just want to ask some wide-arching questions around how the industry works, how we work specifically in that type of thing. That was Dan Rogenkamp. He is the co-founder and director of Set Up My Offshore. As always, if you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. And if you want to ask us anything, then drop us an email to ask at outsourceaccelerator.com. See you next time.